Hi, this is Frank McKenna, just to tell you about the fantastic events program that we have for your pleasure across the autumn program. Uh, we have Chris Oglesby doing an event for us in Birmingham. He, of course, is the head honcho of Brookwood. We've got the shadow business secretary, Johnny Reynolds, joining us for an event in Manchester, we have a round table with Tom Stannard, who's the Chief Executive of Salford Council. Uh, we've also got um, Tim Nunes, who is from um, Government Department of International Trade. We've got a Changemakers Live Summit in Birmingham in October. We've got events in and around the Labour Party conference. And we've got a In Conversation event with Angela Barnacle, who's Head of Regeneration at Leeds City Council. In addition to that, we've got events with regional mayors Andy Street and Steve Rotherham. We've also got the Chief Executive of Liverpool City Council, Andrew Lewis, join us for a leaders lunch, and Deborah Capman, Chief Executive of Birmingham City Council as well. Loads of other people who are coming and joining us for our events programme, loads of other things happening, including the launch of our brand new social networking brand downtown unplugged if you go to our website all the w's downtown in business.com you will see all of the events that we have available for you to attend of course it's accessible to members only so if you're not a member of downtown in business yet why not go to that website address as i say all the w's downtown in business.com click on join and you'll get all the details of how you can become part of the fastest growing business network in the UK. Welcome to the Downtown Den podcast with me, Frank McKenna, the Chief Executive and Group Chair of Downtown and Business. And I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Luciana Berger. Luciana is a former parliamentarian. She's currently the Senior Advisor at In-House Communications. She's spoken at many a Downtown in Business event in the past. Indeed, she helped me uh, present the Women in Business Awards on a number of occasions back in Liverpool a number of years ago. It doesn't seem that long ago, uh, but sadly it is. And Luciana, I'm delighted that you joined us for the podcast. Welcome to the Downtown Den. Thanks, Frank. Great to join you. Thanks for having me. Uh, so this is part of our leaders series. And obviously, you've been a leader in many different aspects of your career. But just give listeners uh, a taste of your sort of career to date. Well, I think it's fair to say it's been been very varied. <laughs> Lots of different things that I've done professionally and personally forward slash politically. And sometimes, sometimes those things have overlapped. Uh, so I I started my working life in retail um, and in catering. So I, I did lots of silver service catering. Um, I started my retail uh, work experience and, and work life for Disney uh, as a cast wow. member uh, in the in the flagship store in London for a number of years. Um, sporting that uh, really attractive turquoise cardigan <laughs> and beige trousers. I think it's the only time I've ever worn beige in my life. Um, but what I would say is it was it was fantastic training, uh, kind of a, a real great entry point into kind of working life and customer service and, and how you look after people. Uh, I did a degree, I went to university, did it in business and Spanish, uh, and that's when I got involved in the politics. I came to it a little bit later than some. Um, and I left, I left university. 
I spent some time before university and through I was sponsored by a company that was then called Anderson Consulting mm. that became Accenture. So I had some fantastic training with them and worked in lots of different sectors, consulting for massive blue chip companies like Barclays, uh, working for BP when they bought Castrol and thinking about how you integrate businesses when you when you take them over. Uh, did some work for a number of different central government departments. I had a very different view of uh, what it's like running big departments on behalf of the country for the treasury, the prime minister's delivery unit, looking at health um, and culture as well. Uh, I then went and worked for the NHS Confederation. So really got, I've got involved in the huge, enormous ecology that is our national health service, you know, the third largest employer in the world, working to represent all the management side of the NHS, which doesn't always get, you know, good, uh, good, press. Get good press, but ultimately is, you know, what ensures that we have a health service, absolutely critical. Uh, and people often think, you know, you know, when you ask someone, I'll ask you, you know, what percentage of our NHS do you think is made up of management? Well, I would say, because I read the Daily Mail occasionally, about 90%, but I'm sure it's near a 40. Would you say about 40%? So you, you just said 90, but now you think it's no, 40? No, I was only joking with the 90. I'd say between 30 and 40% managers. Well, if I, let you, if I tell you that in the US, it's, it's between 18 and, 18 and 20%. Okay. So what do you think it is here? Oh, well, if it's 18 and 20 in the States, I'd say 25 here then. No, it's around 6%. Wow. Really? Yeah. Yeah, really. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, there's obviously a big discussion that goes on about... <laughs> so it's all about process. perception, yeah? A lot of it's about perception, mm. yes. And lots of those managers you know, also have a clinical background. You, you know, certainly mm. need a mix of both. Um, but that was a really interesting role. Mm. Then just like very different looking at foreign and international relations in the Middle East. And then found myself selected as a parliamentary candidate uh, back in 2000, start of 2010 and was elected um, when I was still just 28 um, in May 2010 and went on to serve in the House of Commons for just shy of a decade. Uh, since, since Parliament had come out and I spent two years working at Edelman, which is the largest communications agency in the UK. I was the managing director of their public affairs and advocacy practice doing that in pandemic circumstances <laughs> and conditions. Uh, you know, it really speaks to leadership about how you do that when I came into the business in the pandemic. So I didn't even get to meet many of my friends and colleagues and peers. That was a really mm. interesting experience. Um, uh, and then most recently I joined in-house communications. So that brings us right up to date. And what an exciting, <laughs> dynamic and varied career you've enjoyed so far. And I'm sure there's more to come. So let's just go back to, um, you know, those early days in terms of retail. And you sort of said about Disney and the culture of the working environment there. And Disney really is a very customer-facing um, business. And, and it, I think it does have you know, reputation of being a great business in terms of looking after customers and having a good culture. What were they like to work for? Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, like joining the business when I was 16 years old, uh, it was fantastic training. It was a really great experience. Uh, and certainly, you know, they have at their core, as you said, you know, it's not actually called the customer, it's called the guest. Mm. Everyone that comes into Disney is a guest. 
Uh, everyone that works for Disney is a cast member. We operate, or we did, you know, when I was there, I operated on a stage. Every interaction is on the stage. And I don't know whether they still use it today, but certainly the customer service model was centered around magic. Oh, wow. Uh, magic stands, you know, every letter within magic stands for something. I still remember it to this day. M is uh, to meet every guest that you encounter. And, you know, when you go into Disney, everyone will mm. be very friendly and say hello. A is assessing your guest. Uh, again, this concept is so relevant to everything we do in life, you know, how we should assess who it is that we're engaging with, their age, and not to profile them, but to make sure that we're best responding to their needs. Um, uh, oh, so forgive me. M's not, ma- no, I got that wrong. M's maintain your presence. M, M is maintain your presence. So you're, you're always thinking about yeah. how you're on stage. How, G, G is to greet your guests. So you right. greet everyone that you meet. I is to individualize your service. So you, again, you make it appropriate um, to who it is that's in front of you. Being in the store that I was in in London, I, I got to use my languages um, because there's lots of um, obviously foreign yeah. uh, guest tourists coming to London. Um, and C's conclude. So everything you do within Disney has to have a conclusion, whether it's a thank you or a goodbye. And those principles, I think, are very mm. much stuck with me today, being really relevant in in all the things that I've I've worked in. Yeah. Um, and obviously, different companies and uh, different different places do it in different ways. Mm. That's, but it's, it's essentially, I think, kind of those principles would apply anyway. A great grounding, I guess. And you yeah. know, all of the jobs that you've gone through and experienced, very much communication is at the heart of them, isn't it? And so, yes. um, you know, again, being in that role at Disney, as you say, not just dealing with customers from the UK, but dealing with international visitors as well. Again, good grounding for you. But of those jobs... We take you up to the position that you did at uh, the NHS. What were the sort of um, challenges and learnings fr- fr- from those? Because obviously more corporate than that retailer side of things, but nevertheless still in each of those roles, crucially important that y- you get on with people because all of those roles are about really negotiation skills, about being able to, as I say, communicate and get along with folk, yeah? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and, and also when you're learning, I mean, I, I know when I first started the role with the NHS Confederation, the learning curve in that <laughs> in that role in particular, you know, having an appreciation for our health service, but never being, you know, certainly kind of uh, involved in it in, to the to the to the depths of the detail that I was, you know, that that was probably the, one of the steepest learning curves, um, other than perhaps when I came into Parliament. So you, so you know, you, you need your colleagues around you to help you when you're trying to get to grips with something that you have so many different components to it is so enormous even when you break it down into the different groupings whether it's you know the ambulance side or the hospital side or the primary care side or the mental health side uh you know each 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 and every one of those components alone has just so much to learn and know about and and both the the who what why where when so certainly when you come into those roles um, you know, you never get to start a job more than once. Mm. <laughs> um, so make, making the most of that time at the beginning, asking all the questions, there's never a wrong question. Um, you know, you really have to lean and rely on colleagues at the start. So so doing that because that's okay. Uh, and just trying to suck up and saturate as much information as possible to help with the role that then comes. I think um, certainly when I've myself, you know, manage a team or employ people, I've been very open to making sure people have ample time at the start in their roles to uh, really kind of 
on board and on board well mm. in order to be able to hit the ground running. Um, that time, I think, is always pretty crucial. Mm. And you said there, you know, the NHS, such a huge organisation, and um, you're dealing with a crucial part of it in terms of that management side of the business. Do you think, did you think then, and do you think now that the NHS, in terms of its managerial approach and its managers, gets a bit of a bum rap because, you know, you, you're able to easily call me out in terms of my perception of the number of managers that were involved in the administration of the National Health Service. Um, so, as I say, do you think that the NHS gets a, a, a bum rap as far as that's concerned, being over heavy bureaucratically and, as I say, managerially? Well, I think it's, you know, in some people's interests to present our National Health Service as being managerial heavy when that's not the case. I think it's fair to say, you know, the walls come off a lot of people's eyes and, and they realise, you know, that it's just when you look at our per capita spend on health compared to other countries and you see the reduction that's happened um, in terms of our population, people acknowledge that, you know, the challenges our NHS face are not because it's got bad managers. That's not to say that they can't be reformed. There aren't things that can change. Um, certainly many, I think, of the challenges flow from the NHS because the decisions are made so late in the day and um, people can't plan. Um, take, for example, so I'm, I'm, uh, I, I, to, I currently chair a charity, the Maternal Mental Health Alliance, and we focus on all the services that provi- are provided, the mental health services that are provided to expectant and new mums. Uh, this is like a really crucial point in a mum's life when, uh, you know, as women, we are 30 to 40 times more likely to experience some mental health conditions than at any other moment in our lives. So it's a really, really important moment and that there has been some changes and there has been some more funding come forward. But in the past year alone, some of that funding was announced so, so late. And also uh, the funding wasn't confirmed for the year that followed. So it's no surprise that we've got all these vacancies across the country and the money's not being spent because both of those trusts whose responsibility is, or I call them trust, but whether, you know, the, um, the, the, the name evolves, but the, the you know the accountable service that or provider in that area who decides how to allocate the money. Whether it's a challenge that they face, that you know, do they allocate the money? They're going to get the money next year. And other people considering those positions and jobs, would you take a job if you don't know for sure that that post is going to be funded for the following year? So having that certainty of funding is so important, and announcing it you know, in good time for the start of the financial year. Those are things that can make a really you know big difference. And what, unfortunately, what we've seen, particularly over the last few years, is, you know, we get to the winter time, there's a massive panic because the NHS is in crisis. We see the pictures on the on, on the news of all those ambulances backed up, you know, very serious issues where you get, you know, people in A&E that are working in A&E go on the, um, Instagram. We saw it for Aintree the other week. Uh, don't come here. Please go other places. We're completely full. And so the government scrambles around because they're trying to fix the problem or do something about it. And it's too late, right? Or they're, having, they're spending the money badly because it's not planned for and it's not spent in good time. So there's certainly... I'm not, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, and it requires governments um, and those who are allocating the resources to do so in really good time, good planning with like, you know, three-year tranches of funding when you're trying to um, 
Think about ways in which you can keep people out of post, uh, out of hospital and you can think about integrating more when it comes to social care. And the big thing that I really care about is what we can do to prevent people from getting ill in the first mm. place. I think many of the challenges we see today is because everything that's around the health service, whether that's around our education services or our you know, healthy eating or what happens in our children's centres, like so many of those services are being savaged that, you know, we're not doing enough to prevent ill health in the first place. And so we're spending more and people are getting iller. You know, we're not, we're not doing stuff. We're not either, we're not either intervening early enough or we're not doing anything to prevent it in the first place. And therefore it's no surprise that we've got more acute experiences of physical and mental health in this country. Mm. And a big job for um, whoever might be in charge next time next year in terms of Absolutely, NHS reform yeah. because there's there's a hell of a backlog to deal with in terms of waiting lists. Yeah. But as you say, you know, I, I guess a fairly demoralised staff now as well, you know, in terms of motivation and so on. It's not really going to be easy for whoever uh, takes on that challenge of turning it round. But listen, you're in that position of, yeah, I'm sure, a really interesting job um, in a service that you clearly care about and you've done some... Uh, crucial um, sort of jobs prior to that government level. What attracted you to go into Parliament? Um, well, I think it's fair to say that when I put myself forward, I wasn't guaranteed that I was going to win the selection, and it certainly wasn't guaranteed that I was going to win the election either. You know, unlike other forms of employment, where it's 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 just a lot more either simple and or you know you can predict it a bit more, or there's other things that you can do. You know, you can only you can only be a member of parliament in one house of commons. <laughs> um, if you're not successful at that election, you know, you try again, but it's not for four years. Uh, on average, four years, four or five years. Um, so there was I, this plucky twenty-eight year old, and um, it was a, it was a very competitive selection. And then the election itself, it was the place um, where at the time in two thousand and ten. Uh, the Liberal Democrats had identified as their target constituency in the northwest of England. It's where Nick Clegg came to first when the general election was called. Um, uh, and I, I was selected as the candidate just 101 days before the election. So I had just a short space of time in which to campaign with an amazing team of people because when you're a candidate, you don't do it alone. There was it was just fantastic. There were so many people that got involved, people from the council and a formidable woman called Sheila Murphy, um, who uh, was the linchpin bringing people together. But it's never guaranteed. So, uh, you know, in answer to your question, you know, I put myself forward. I didn't necessarily think mm. that I was that that was necessarily going to be successful mm. at that at that first uh, attempt. Um, so that that's you know, and you've got to go into it not having those expectations because mm. politics, you know, you just it's it's not a science. Mm. Uh, you can't predict it. There's external things that can happen that are beyond your control, and you have to be really open to the knocks and uh, just you know, it's just non-defined and it's very fluid. And anything can happen. Mm, it certainly can. That was when I first met you, of course, because yeah. I think it was at the first hustings that we met. <laughs> I chaired it. And um, and I'm not saying this uh, in any disparaging way. I can't remember the guy's name, the Lib Dem candidate. I think it was Colin something. You might remember. <laughs> yes, this is Colin. Yeah, and he um, was certainly very um, – how can I put this? He was, he was fairly – Buoyant. I think he expected to win. Let me put it that way. Yeah. So, you know, when I people, yeah, I think when people think about Liverpool again, we talked about perception 
about the NHS. I think people uh, listening to this podcast across the country will think Liverpool, Labour City, that must have been a safe seat. But actually, you know, at the time, it was very much felt that that seat was uh, in danger of being lost by Labour. And, you know, recently um, there was conversation about a 25-year-old being elected to Parliament and uh, Johnny Mercer, somewhat surprisingly to me, actually, because I always thought Johnny Mercer was one of the more reasonable <laughs> Tory MPs to be on. But he was sort of having a go at the fact that the the fact that this guy was only twenty five. I just wondered, Luciana, at twenty eight years of age, you know, obviously you'd had um, significant experience in the workplace. But did you go to Parliament and feel intimidated in any way because of your age? Was there a touch of imposter syndrome? Do you think? So there's so many different and so many different things to respond to that really important question. I've been asked it quite a lot actually in the last few weeks since Keir Mather was uh, elected in Selby in the by-election just a few weeks ago, um, and obviously he was 25 and I was just a few years older. I think we need a parliament and a House of Commons that reflects British society. We're making some progress to achieve that aim, but we're still far short. And it requires people of all ages and backgrounds, and that includes younger people too. And certainly there are many people, including some famous broadcasters, that don't think there should be anyone under the age of 40 in our parliament. Um, And what I would say to that is uh, it requires our diversity. It also requires a lot of energy to do the role. it's, it's, It's very demanding. It's seven days a week, I think, to six, seven days a week in that role to particularly when you're starting to do it well. Uh, I'm not an advocate of kind of hard work for the sake of it, but it's, it's just that, you know, there's a lot to do when you first start. Um, and there are some issues that are obviously more relevant uh, to younger people in this country, particularly you know, whether we want a country where I believe that we should have successive generations doing better than the previous generation. And that isn't the case at this moment. I think it requires people in parliament who can advocate on behalf of the generations that are coming through that may not all vote as, as much and as often as their, as, as, as older members of, of our country. Um, but still, you know, you know, who's, you know, decisions that are made will impact on them for, for decades and for the longest time to come. Um, you know, I was one of the few MPs that for many years when I was in Parliament was still paying off my student loan. Yeah. So when we were talking about issues of student finance, that was something that was very, very relevant to me. Um, you know, I didn't buy my first home until I was in Parliament. Uh, and so actually speaking to someone who didn't have a home, that, that was also relevant too. And when we're talking about issues around education, employment, training, uh, universities, etc. Again, if you're not to say that you have to have done it to, to, to have empathy and to, you know, to, to, you know, you have to walk in someone's shoes to be able to represent them. But I do think it's helpful to have that diversity of representation. And I and I'm a strong advocate of people of younger people being in Parliament as well, not instead of, but to bring down the average age and to have a, a, you know a very diverse chamber in the House of Commons. And no other reason also that you know for any young person that might stumble across the Parliament channel. You know, I want them to see a chamber that they can identify mm. with and people they can identify with and people of all ages in there and all backgrounds and all colours uh, and, you know, of all different persuasions. Um, and certainly progress has been made. You know, Parliament looks a lot better today than it did when I came mm. in in 2010, but there's still more to do. Certainly I reflected on his comments, Mr Mercer's comments, and thought, well, yeah, because 
all those middle-aged guys who are currently running the show are doing such a fabulous job. But uh, there you go. And I, too, got involved in politics at a very young age and was elected in my 20s. So uh, good luck to Kia and anybody who follows in the 20s as well. So I asked you about the imposter syndrome um, issue because there's a lot of people actually I've spoken to. Steve Rotherham, who you know well, is somebody who said, you know, he found the place quite intimidating. Uh, when he first went into the Commons. Uh, and others have said uh, Scottish MP recently has decided not to stand again because she said as a working environment, she just doesn't find it uh, being particularly um, consistent with her uh, values, I suppose. Uh, and then obviously you see lots of cases being brought, and this isn't necessarily unusual for the House Commons, don't suppose, but when you consider there's only 600 nod MPs in there. It does strike me that, you know, you hear of uh, sexual harassment cases being brought forward and all those sort of things. And then you do get an awful lot of women saying that just the unsocial hours of the whole thing is a problem. That's a problem for guys as well, I guess. All of those things, Luciana, all of those challenges. And then on top of that, you're 28 years of age. Um that's really where I was coming from in terms of saying, you know, how did you find that place going in at that age and all of those things that we know about from the outside looking in? Yeah, so I, I, what I would say in answer to that question, kind of a caveat to my answer is obviously I came in 13 years ago, yeah. uh, first came in, and obviously a lot has changed. And yes, we hear some ugly stories, but that is not symptomatic of the overwhelming majority of people that go into the House of Commons. Um, uh, but but certainly when I came into it, it kind of felt like, what is this place? <laughs> you know, I just felt like so like like I was like walking into a, into a different world. Like you know, I'd worked, I'd been in a workplace, been in many workplaces before, then, and worked as a, as a consult management consultant in lots of different um, environments and. and it, four different businesses and all of a sudden here I was in a workplace where just 23% of it was women and I really did feel in the minority um, and you know I've had people like say well what are you doing in the lifts you, you know it's reserved for MPs I'm like yeah I, I, when the votes were going on I was like yeah I, I, I am an MP um, and you know there was some kind of moments where I thought this is like really unusual and it, it can be really daunting really daunting um, and when I came into parliament I had done some public speaking but I, I then started, and I've kind of grown out of it now, but I had a, a, a an involuntary shaky leg. So, you know, when I would stand up and speak, you know, my, my leg would shake. And in fact, when I, I was um, appointed as a shadow minister, and when I first came in by Ed Miliband, I was a shadow minister for energy and climate change. And when I first stood at the dispatch box, I had to stand on my foot because it was my leg was shaking so much. Yeah. So. I don't think, you know, it was helped by kind of the imposing surroundings. It's much smaller inside than what you see on TV. People do bay at you, you know, although they, you know, you've got the speakers, that, the successive speakers that are trying to address that. Um, but yeah, it's kind of quite a hostile environment. And I was part of the campaign team that sought to reduce some of those late nights. And we only just got it through um, in my first term in parliament. There were people saying we should, you know, if you want to go home and you, you put your kids to bed and come back again, who wants to come back to work again um, and, and be there for voting at 10? So there is still one late night. And that does make sense because there are people coming from really, really far away places, particularly in Scotland, that require those hours to travel and they shouldn't have to travel on their weekend. So there is every good reason why there's 
one late night, but sometimes, you know, the votes can go past seven right through to eight, nine o'clock. And, you know, if I was to consider it now, I'm a single parent. Like, I don't know how I'd make that work. Yeah. I mean, I think practically that's, that's those are pretty challenging set of circumstances. So um, it's not ideal, but I don't know how you change it other than if you reserve votes for other days of the week and you make sure that they start a much earlier time in the afternoon. But it's, it is a, it is an unusual um, kind of working time. And it's also the fact that for the majority of MPs that have their constituencies outside of London, you have to live in two places. You know, everyone used to kind of get very excited about MPs' expenses. The idea was some sort of joy or benefit to live in two homes and have two sets of bills. And particularly when I had young kids, like it was, it was a nightmare. Um, and so you've also got to layer on top of that your, your travel time every week between two homes. What I would say, though, is at the end of the day, it's an enormous privilege and an amazing, amazing opportunity and responsibility to be an MP. Like I, I never, you know, even 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 a few years out of it, I, you know, I reflect on what an incredible, you know, how, how fortunate I am to have had that experience and what an amazing privilege it was. Um, and the responsibility you know, as as an MP that comes with it, but yes, yeah, certainly when you come into that place, it's 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 just like a sensory overload. I think some people would call it. But that is only still one component of like the role that you have. Mm. So so much of it also is what you do back in the constituency, your face to face surgeries, or much of them have kind of gone online now to help you know constituents. But you know the visits that you do the people that you meet the work that you do if you've got a shadow or a you have a ministerial role or a shadow ministerial role if you're on a select committee where you specialize and you get to go out across the country and really gain a, a depth of understanding around the policy issue you know anything to get out of Westminster was something that I would grab with two hands <laughs> and would really relish to make sure that what you're talking about you know when you talk about in, in Westminster it's it's relevant to people's experiences and and what they're facing in their daily lives and um unless unless you hear and see and feel it and touch it and hear it uh then you can't I don't think really understand it and best represent both the challenges but also the opportunities so for me I try to spend as much time out of the chamber as possible and out of and out of the confines of of uh, Westminster and Whitehall mm. and the Westminster Hall, as it's described. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. And you mentioned in terms of you know how you approach recruitments and getting people involved in the companies and the organisations you work with. Uh, that crucially important thing of um, onboarding. And I just wondered what sort of induction you get as an MP when you go to Parliament. It's pretty poor. I mean, I think they've, I think they've improved it slightly since since when I did it, but uh, it's just tricky because you you know it's not it's not like any other role or job. It's not you know you're not allowed to call it a job. It's not it's not it's not a job. But it's it's but it's not a vacation. But it's <laughs> it feels like one. Yeah. <laughs> it's, but it's what you spend. You know, it's not something you you know that you can be doing. That you've got too much time to do anything else if you're going to do it properly. Uh, it's difficult because you're answerable to the party, you're answerable to your constituency, you're, uh, both your constituency in terms of your constituents that elected you and your constituency party, whichever party you're a part of. You're answerable in part to the leadership and the, the parliamentary grouping that you're a part of. And then there's some sort of, kind of loose construct of House of Commons authorities that oversees that kind of all the admin stuff when it comes to recruitment and your office and your tech and 
it, what, as I said, what everyone gets very excited about, which is MPs' expenses. Mm. Um, so it's, it's just quite tricky to navigate. There's not, just, you know, there's not one person or one organization in, in a way that if you joined any sort of other organization or company, you'd have somewhere to go. There'd be, you know, very clear mm. uh, spaces and places where you'd be part of that induction. As I said, I think it's getting better now. And I think political parties themselves are looking at how they induct them on board their new MPs. Um, certainly, you know, there are, there are examples of where it's been done to, you know, positively in the past. But, you know, politics doesn't have the resources it should, I don't think, um, have to do this stuff well. Um, or it certainly hasn't in the past. And that's also part of the challenge. It's not that people don't value it. It's just, you know, making the time, space and having the resources available to fund it to make sure people are properly trained and supported is, is uh, you know, hasn't historically been what's happened because there just hasn't been the money to invest in it. Mm. And, of course, what people often forget is you become an employer as well because you have Indeed. staff. And when people refer to MPs' expenses, always drives me that when they produce these lists who's claimed the most and what expenses have been... And, of course, that goes towards staffing. It goes towards your travel, as you say. You've got second home. Um, but the team that you build around you at the constituency level is hugely important, isn't it, as an MP? Absolutely. You know, and, and there's also you, the team that you build that has to necessarily be in two places. So uh, it's the, the team that's available um, physically present when you're in Westminster. Um, it's a team that's available in the constituency when you're back home and when you're working from the constituency office both of those are very different roles and responsibilities uh you know uh, mps deal with hundreds of pieces of casework on a monthly if not weekly basis and need uh, you know mps require fantastic caseworkers to oversee all that caseload you know, mps are very much involved in all the cases but the admin that goes with it or you just single-handedly an mp couldn't do it alone and likewise you know, there'd be days in Parliament where I'd register like well over 15,000 steps, sometimes over 20,000 steps. You are running around uh, between the two buildings all day long, between committee meetings, political meetings, select committee meetings, shadow meetings, whatever it is. It's nonstop. So, again, just the admin of that, um, you know, just the invites that come in. To go to you know, just the meeting requests, I should say, rather than invites, you know, the requests, just like managing all of that and doing that well and making sure there's follow up. You know, MPs require staff and, and a team. And I've been so lucky. I mean, I cannot um, count my lucky stars enough for the fantastic team that I had with me over the years, many of whom I'm still in touch with today. Well, I hosted a barbecue for them all not that long ago. Um, you know, just saw one of the team very, very recently. Uh, uh, they, they, they. I was very, very lucky to have fantastic people working with me in both Westminster and the constituency, and I count many of them as my friends today. Mm. Which is the nice part of that job that you had as a constituency MP in Liverpool. But of course, um, you decided at some point to uh, stand down. Um, you had enough, in a sense, from uh, of the the constituency. How can I put this kindly? Uh, or do I need to put it kindly? It was a, a, I thought, you know, again, um, I'm based in Liverpool, so I saw some of the stuff that was happening. I just thought it was a terrible bullying campaign against you. And I think you handled it remarkably well in the circumstances. Um, and then obviously 
you take a different tack to your parliamentary career without wishing to get into the detail of all those issues and all those difficulties, because we could spend an hour on that at Luciana. And again, you mentioned the fact that Parliament's changed for the better. I think the Labour Party has certainly changed for the better since those times that you were struggling with your constituency party. Um, but post that parliamentary career, um, did you start to think relatively early about what you were going to do next year? Was there a point in time when you thought, actually, you know, Member of Parliament, yeah, I've sort of done it. It is a privilege to have ticks the box, but I need to start to think about what the next moves are to me. Or was it just something that almost accidentally happened? You come out of Parliament and you fall into a new role. Oh, I'm going to try and answer that question as succinctly as possible because there's so many different elements to it and uh, I want to answer your question fully. The first thing to flag is that I left the Labour Party. So a lot flowed from my decision to leave the Labour Party because for me and um, and, and everyone has you know takes a different view and had a different experience. I had a very acute experience because of the combination of um, my experience, as you rightly point out, with the constituency Labour Party um, uh, and the experience I had as the then parliamentary chair of the Jewish Labour Movement um, and... For anyone that doesn't know, you know, in the in the year that followed, the Equality and Human Rights Commission uh, did an investigation into the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership and found that it was guilty of the victimisation and harassment of its Jewish members during that time. And there had been political interference from the leader's office. So that was that was the reflection on what happened during that period. It gave me no satisfaction to leave the Labour Party. It's never something I ever considered, uh, you know, that I'd even have to think about, let alone a decision I'd have to make. It certainly wasn't one that I took lightly. Um, from my own experience, you know, the party at the time was betraying the very values that led me to join it. You talked about values of all values are really important to me. I joined the party because I, I staunchly believed in the values of equality for all and anti-racism against all. And under that leadership, I just didn't believe that those values were being borne out. So I made that decision but I miss, I should say, you know, that was a decision about my constituency Labour Party in part. Um, Liverpool was my home for 10 years. I love Liverpool uh, and I really miss what was my home for 10 years. And and I'm very sorry that, you know, that situation happened, which led me to now not be in the home that I loved. Um, and I'm looking forward to coming to Liverpool for the Labour Party conference in, in, in just a few short weeks' time. But um, certainly it was no reflection on my constituents and of the city, which... I'm very fond of and, and miss enormously. Um, and certainly when you're in politics, if you're thinking about standing, you know, there is no room for what if this doesn't work out. If you're going to do it, certainly in my mind, you've got to do it 110%. Uh, and I gave not an iota of a thought to what might happen if I didn't win the election I stood in. I stood in for a different constituency. Um, it was a different moment in time. Um, in the wake of all the horrific stuff that happened. Um, but no, I didn't give not one moment thought to what I would do if I wasn't successful in the other constituency that I stood in. And um, that happened. And uh, you then had just a few short weeks in which to wind up your affairs as an MP. It's pretty brutal. Uh, you have to make your team redundant. That's really hard. You have to wind up two offices I had to sell my home in Liverpool because uh, I couldn't live in two places. 
Um, I had to put all my stuff in storage and, and I was hoping to have some space and time to think about what might uh, come next. I'd actually had a number of opportunities fall on my lap to do some international speaking, reflecting on my time as an MP in the Labour Party. I got to do the first leg of my international speaking tour. I got to go to uh, to California and Arizona. Uh, and then the pandemic hit. God. So I then very, very, very quickly, very quickly had to recalibrate and to really make some quick decisions about what I was going to do. Because the time that I thought and the space I thought I was going to have to go and do these speaking arrangements, you know, speaking, sorry, speaking engagements, um, you know, then were cancelled because of the pandemic. So I had to really quickly go through lots of different processes and have lots of online interviews. And in fact, the job that I secured with uh, Edelman came after eight rounds of interview. Blood, and wow. eight <laughs> online Zoom uh, <laughs> interviews. Um, and, I, and I went through a number of different processes and kind of weighed up the options in front of me at that time, decided the opportunity with Edelman um, was the right one for me at that time. And that's what I did for a couple of years that followed. Mm. And right up to date, the, the latest role that you've taken? So I now work with a, a different kind of agency, a much smaller agency, um, a, a, a female-led and a female-owned agency in London called In-House Communications. Uh, and we have some fantastic clients and do some great work, um, working in lots of different sectors in energy and technology, uh, working a lot of around infrastructure, working around communications and public affairs. I'm, I'm sure... Um, that that's something that ticks all the boxes in terms of your interests. But um, listen, I could talk to you all day about lots of different aspects of your career because it has been such a varied and, and fascinating one. But we've only got a certain amount of time. I've kept you long that I promised I would, but I've got to ask you. You have, Frank. Um, you have, You promised I, I always, I always do that with you. Um, listen, the one thing I do need to ask before we go then is, is it right that you did a stand-up comic session recently I, i've done more than one friend. wow tell us about <laughs> this because i had to oh, go I'm... i had to go right years and years ago, and i absolutely died on my ass it was the Aww. most unforgiving <laughs> of arenas and when i saw i've just saw a couple of clips recently i thought it's that luciana doing a, a stand-up routine bloody hell yeah so tell me about that um, so I took a bit of time off last year and um, just a little bit of time. And I found myself with a week where I was kind of in between roles and I decided to do the most incredible course. And anyone that's listening that might be interested, I can't recommend enough the course that they do at the Bill Murray. It's a comedy uh, club in the North, well, it's in, it's in uh, Angels in North London. Uh, an incredible teacher called Dick Munro, a massive fan. He does a lot of um, comedy stuff. Um, and it was just an amazing experience with 14 other people. It was a week-long intensive. And you're basically thrown in the deep end and doing stuff on stage from the first afternoon. Uh, <laughs> and I've done a number of gigs, so I really enjoy it. It's really, it's really great. Um, what I hadn't appreciated was actually having been in politics and doing lots of public speaking takes you quite quite a distance. Um, uh, it takes you some of the way there. So one of the sessions we had was with a, a comedy theatre director who came to appraise us all and give us the feedback. And we did a little minutes or two minutes of uh, comedy, and he you know give us some uh, just some thoughts. And he said, you know, he said to me. 
you've got amazing breath work. Uh, <laughs> it's hilarious. But it's basically a reflection of, no, no one's ever taught me how to stand and talk, mm. but you know, because of what you have to do, whether that's in the chamber, the mm. House of Commons, or the speeches you have to give, or uh, I think one of, the, one, of the, one of the things I'm most proud of was uh, in Liverpool, we were waiting for Ed Miliband. It was, I don't know, 2012, say, 2013, and we were in a hotel on Edge Lane and it was a massive crowd, three, four hundred people. And Ed Miliband's train was late. And I basically just had to stand there in front of these people uh, who weren't expecting me and certainly didn't want to hear from me. But I had to literally just talk to them. I ended up talking to them about energy and climate change for like unscripted for 40 minutes. So when you're kind of thrown into those sort of deep ends and just have to talk, it, it, it helps you if you then later decide you want to try a bit of stand-up comedy. Um, and I never thought I was that funny, but it turns out my team over the years thought I was really funny. Um, probably they thought I was uh, funny peculiar rather than uh, <laughs> funny comedic. But um, yeah, they talk about the the impressions I used to do in the office. Uh, and I just write material all the time. And uh, yeah, I've done, I did my, I did my um, showcase at, at that same comedy club. I've done a few gigs in, in various places. I mean, I say gigs, that might be exaggerating slightly. They're, you know, they're like open mic nights, at the you know, the Cavendish and places in Ely and people, places around uh, London. But it's really fun. Um, and uh, yeah, I really enjoy it. Fantastic. I'm definitely going to come along to one of those open mic nights and see you in a stand-up. I can't wait. Listen, Luciana, as I say, we've, Kept you longer than we planned to anyway. We could have spoken about so much more. Now, hopefully, we'll get you back on uh, to do another podcast. We are doing something um, from the autumn on politics, so that would obviously be a natural one to try and get you back on and, and have a chat about what you're thinking of the political situation as it stands at this moment in time. I'm going to see you in September in London. I think you're coming to our event with West Streeting and Gary Neville. Is that right? I am, yes. Fabulous. Thanks for the input. So, uh, so see you there. And obviously all your old mates in Liverpool can catch up with you at the conference in October as well. So uh, that's uh, Luciana Berger in the downtown den. Great to speak to her. Some really fascinating tales there. As I say, we could have spoken for a lot longer, but we will get her back on, I promise. Luciana, thanks very much. Thanks, Frank.